0: Please take your Bibles and turn now to the Gospel of John and chapter 19. The Gospel of John and chapter 19. We'll read verses 28 to 30. This is right at the end of... John's account of our Saviour's crucifixion. John 19 at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge Full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Three words in English. Just one word in Greek. And what a words? It is, says one writer, a word of which the immense weight cannot be exaggerated. A word, he says, which may be said to have in it the whole of the gospel. Think about it as the words of the Lord's servant. He has come into the world with a great work assigned to him by his Father in Heaven, to so live and then to so die that God's great age long worldwide purpose. Of grace might be fulfilled. And now it's done. Finished. Accomplished. All that the Father has given him to do. All that the Father has ordained that he should suffer. Perfectly completed. It is the sixth of. The seven words that our Saviour spoke from the cross. And swiftly on its heels comes the last word of all. We heard it earlier in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does it tell us? It tells us that Calvary is no scene of defeat though that is unquestionably what it looks like. This is not the triumph of evil. This is a place of victory. Of glorious victory. These final words are telling us that the Jesus story is not ending in the darkness, but rather in the light It is finished. Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. I mentioned yesterday morning a sermon by George H. Morrison of Glasgow. Another of his sermons is entitled, Is Life a Tragedy? And he begins by defining what he means by a tragedy. It is, he says, a play or drama that marches with stately movement to calamity. In tragedy, the characters move onward through love and hate and the passions of joy and sorrow to an end that is shadowed and an issue that is dark. Macbeth is a tragedy. Othello is a tragedy. Hamlet is a tragedy, but not the Jesus story. For all that he dies, the most painful and shameful of death. The Jesus story ends in triumph with a cry of accomplishment, with the committal of his spirit into the Father's hand, and you know what the great proof is that this was no vain imagination on the part of the Saviour three days later. God raises him from the dead. Well, it is around this glorious victory that we're going to gather our thoughts for a little this evening. And here is how we are going to approach it. We're going to think about the bearing of this victory on a number of important things. And, first of all, on the gospel. The victory of Calvary has a bearing, a profound bearing, on the gospel that we preach. For example on what we can tell people about sin. And what we can tell people about sin is this, bad as it is, damning as it is, impossible as it is for us to deliver ourselves from its guilt and its power because of Calvary's victory. Our sin, your sin, my sin, can be completely taken away. Put it against the backdrop of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all these animals slain at the command of God. They did do something for people, something at least. Within the framework of Old Covenant life, they delivered from certain penalties and secured certain blessings, but they could not deal with sin once and for all. They could not put the sinner right with God. They could not deliver from final condemnation and bless the worshiper with eternal life. For that a better sacrifice was needed. And Isaac Watts' words, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Well, now that greater sacrifice has been offered. The greater sacrifice to which all these lesser sacrifices pointed forward. Hebrews 10 verse 12 when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin he sat down at the right hand of God a single sacrifice for sin that was all that it took and that is why he cried out it is finished and it means in turn that we have the best news in the world about sin. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we can go to people with good news about their sin? But we can. We can say to them, I can say to you, bad as it is, damning as it is, impossible as it is for you to deliver yourself from its guilt and its power cause of calvary's finished work your sin can be wholly taken away so the bearing of calvary's victory on the gospel that we preach and specifically on what we can tell people about sin and to take a second example On what we can tell people about salvation. And what we can tell people about salvation in the light of Calvary's victory is that that salvation is an already purchased gift, it's an already accomplished fact. The Bible uses some fascinating language when it talks to us about what the cross of Calvary has achieved. Second Corinthians 5, verse 19, for example, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But doing it there and then. Reconciling the world to himself. In Romans 5, the language is more definite still. While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It happened there and then. On the cross of Calvary. Now you contrast that with the kind of reconciliation. With which we are familiar ourselves. He has offended her. Or she has offended him. When is there going to be a reconciliation? Only. When both parties are willing to get together and work at it, it necessarily involves them both. But with God, it is remarkably different. There is a sense in which reconciliation has been accomplished apart from our involvement altogether while we were still enemies all the way back at the cross of Calvary. That's why Paul in Romans 5 can talk about us receiving reconciliation. It comes to us as an already accomplished gift. And similarly, with redemption. And it is in that light that we are to think about this cry it is finished. At infinite cost, says James Denny, he put away all that on his part stood between you and peace. And what a message that gives to us for men and women, young people, boys and girls. What can we say? The salvation that you so greatly need. is not something at which you need to aim. Something that you need to work for. Something that will hopefully be yours if you try hard enough to gain the favour of God. The work is already done. It's an already accomplished fact. And you need only open the arms of faith to the saviour and you will receive it as an already purchased gift Calvary's glorious victory it has a bearing on the gospel that we preach on what we can tell people about sin on what we can tell them about salvation salvation There is a saviour to whom you can come who has already dealt with sin and who now, as a free gift, will gladly put you right with himself. Then secondly, think about the bearing of Calvary's victory on the devil. And I begin with the very first gospel promise of all way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3 verse 15 and the Lord God has come into the garden and he is addressing the evil one who in the guise of a serpent has successfully tempted our first parents into sin do you remember what he has to say to him a descendant of this woman whom you have successfully Tempted to sin will appear on the scene, and he will enter into conflict with you, and this will be the issue. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Each will deal the other a blow, each will wound. The other, but in the case of the serpent, in the case of Satan, it will be a fatal blow. Seed of the woman will bruise or crush your head. It's the very first promise of a saviour, and it is couched in terms of crushing victory. Now, bearing that in mind, hear these wonderful words from Hebrews chapter 2 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself partook of the same thing that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil what does that tell us about Calvary tells us that it's not Satan's victory But his nemesis, by the very act of dying, what an astonishing thing, he has dealt the evil one. A fatal blow. And the result, of course, is the sinner's deliverance. Your deliverance. If you're a believer in Jesus, Christ can take the devil's captives, the devil's victims, for his own, exactly as he wishes, and not by a mere act of power, not merely because he is God and has all power in his hands, but justly, in a way to which the evil one can make no Reply all the way through the Old Testament Scriptures. It was the thing that the Lord was doing, delivering men from the power of darkness and doing so on the basis of a work that he would do, of a conflict into which he would enter and a victory he would win. And now it's done. The fight has taken place. He has emerged. The victor now, certainly, it is true that the cross has not annihilated the evil one. It has not stripped him of his power, but it has disabled him. And he must relinquish his slaves to the will of the king. And he will go on doing so until all of the elect have been set free and brought into fellowship with the Saviour and the time has come for the evil ones. Final destruction. It is finished. What does it mean? It means that our great adversary has been dealt at last the promised blow and Christ's own Are truly and forever free. Think about it in the third place Calvary's victory and its bearing now on the individual believer. And I'm thinking here specifically about the death that is ahead for us if the Lord Jesus does not return in our lifetime. Jesus dies. And so also shall we. But it will be at the end of a very different life from the one that he lived. He can cry. It is finished. The life that he has been given to live, perfectly lived. The work that he has been given to do, perfectly done. No regrets no shame, no failure, no sin to confess to his Father in heaven. That will not be our perspective as we look back over our own life and work. There is that first part of it before we came to know the Lord and how darkly the shadow of sin rests on that part and even on the part subsequent to that although the light of heaven has shone and there is much that is good still the shadow of sin lies athwart our lives. Or think of it in terms of the answer to the first question in the shorter catechism, our chief end, what is it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You look back on that first part of your life before you were converted, there was none of that. And even in the part subsequent to that, and yes, by grace we have been enabled to glorify God somewhat and to enjoy Him to some degree, we cannot but hold our heads in shame before him that we have not lived as we ought and yet isn't it wonderful to think that for all our sin and imperfection we who are true believers can approach the hour of our death without fear with the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, guarding our hearts and minds, making our Saviour's final words our very own. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let me state it boldly. There is an all-important sense in which it won't matter at the end That your life has been stained with sin. That the service you've rendered to your master has been so shot through with failure. Not if you're a true believer. Painful and shameful as so much in our lives and service have been. They will not affect our eternal destiny. For all the sin that has stained our lives, for all the imperfection that has characterized our service of Jesus, we will, at the end, if we are true believers, be just as warranted in committing our spirits with confidence into our Father's hand as Jesus himself. And you know why that is. It's all because of the foundation on which we are building, the rock upon which we are standing, our Saviour's finished work. The question and answer number one in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is thy only comfort in life and death? That I with body and soul, both in life and death, are not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. The bearing of Calvary upon the individual believer, upon your future. As an individual believer, because of Jesus and his perfect life and his atoning death, you may anticipate entering glory at the last, sinful as you are, sinful as you have been sinful as you will remain till your last breath and there to remain in the Father's presence until the last day of all and our Lord's saving work in us is brought to its glorious completion Calvary's victory the bearing of that victory upon ourselves. Jesus finished work, covering our sin, securing us eternal life. Think with me in the fourth place for a little about the bearing of Calvary's victory on the church. And by the church, I mean the church as a whole, the body of Christ, made up of God's elect from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue in every age of world history. According to Ephesians 5, and this is the key passage here, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is our Saviour's aim. That is his goal in going to the cross, that there the church whom he has loved might be one for himself. And that being so, you see instantly the bearing of Calvary's victory on the church. Had there been anything wanting in what Jesus did in living and dying for his loved ones, the church would never have been, and its glorious end would never be. But there is nothing Wanting. All that is needed for the salvation of the church is done, perfectly done. And God himself has borne witness to that by raising his son to life again. And you appreciate that that means that our Lord will have the prize for which he died, the radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Think of him, loving the church as a whole, loving every individual member, loving them from eternity. And he sees and vision what the church will be, glorious, without stain, in his presence and the enjoyment forever and ever. How is that goal, that vision, going to be realized? Not as creation was brought into being by the mere word of his power. He knows that between what he desires and envisages and the realization of it, there is a cross and a sacrifice. A death that he must die, and now it is done. And it means that what he has loved and longed for will certainly come into being. And you can break it down into its details, and you can think about Calvary's victory Securing the building of the church and the completing of the church. Every living stone added to that temple until the last one is in place. And you can think about. Calvary's victory securing the uniting of the church and I'm not thinking so much about the healing of those painful divisions with which we are so familiar but rather dealing with that most fundamental of divides the fact that there is a church on earth and a church in heaven one day that divide will disappear and there will be one church in one place and then, as the crown of it all, the church perfected this radiant bride, beautiful, without blemish. See it. You can see it, can't you? And it all goes back to the cross. And to this single word finished. You. Find an acorn and put it in the palm of your hand and imagine out of this little acorn there is going to come a mighty oak that will withstand the storms of centuries. And out of that little word finished that has in it the whole Gospel that has in it the whole church. This glorious bride, perfect and complete, the bearing of Calvary's victory on the church. So there are all these important things on which Calvary's victory has a bearing on the gospel that we preach, on our adversary, the devil, on the future of the individual believer, on the church as a whole. One last important matter. And that is the bearing of Calvary's victory on the Lord himself. What does it all mean for him? It is finished. Think about it with me. Think about the bearing of Calvary's victory on his spirit. And by his spirit, I mean his human spirit. How is it going to fare with his spirit now that he has completed the work? It is going to fare very well indeed He commits it into his father's hand. And you can imagine the father taking it so lovingly, the precious human spirit of his beloved son and bearing it safely into his presence. Or think about the bearing of Calvary's victory on his body. How is it going to fare with his body now that he has finished the work? It is not going to be permitted to suffer any further indignity. It is going to be lovingly taken and lovingly washed and lovingly wrapped and placed in a new tomb. And there it is going to be Preserved from decay, it will see no corruption. Then, on the first day of the week, it will be reunited with the Saviour's Spirit and life will come into it again. And he will emerge in his reconstituted com- humanity and his body, now wonderfully enhanced, sown in weakness. Raised in power. Sown a perishable body. Raised an imperishable body. Sown in dishonor. Raised in glory as ours will be, as yours will be, if Christ is yours. And then I think of the bearing of Calvary's victory on his reception. And by his reception, I mean what happens at the end of the forty days, when he ascends before the eyes of his disciples into heaven. All oh, that we could be there to see it happening. The celebration. Oh, heaven! A star. And there he is, and he takes his seat. God's right hand and all the angels and all the spirits of just men made perfect, celebrating with all their might. All these Old Testament prophets that had been looking forward to this. All the saints who knew that they were there on the basis of him doing that work. And it's done. And he's there, the head that once was crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory. Now you see the bearing of Calvary's victory on his reception. Or think about the bearing of Calvary's victory on his reign. All authority in heaven and on earth, now his head over all things for the sake of the church. And the result, a world that is governed and a church that is built exactly as has been planned. Do you know the things that can hamper even the best administrations on earth? And how the promises made even... With deep sincerity, it is so difficult, often impossible, for leaders to accomplish. But there's none of that with the Lamb in the midst of the throne. He has everything in his hands and will infallibly bring to pass all that has been planned from eternity. Or again, think about the bearing of Calvary's victory on his return. Calvary's victory will have a profound bearing on our Saviour's return. And it's put so exquisitely in Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ, having been sacrificed Once to take away the sins of many people will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him he's not coming back to do it all over again there's no need for him to do that it was done perfectly first time round So that when he comes the second time, it's to bring it all to its magnificent climax and specifically to bring salvation to all those who are waiting on him. Calvary's victory. See the bearing that it has on Christ himself, on his spirit, on his body, on his reception, on his reign, on his return, and lastly, on his joy bearing of Calvary's victory on his joy. When all the fruits are gathered in, when the church for which he has died is perfect and complete and beautiful, what is it going to mean for his joy? It's going to mean that it's full and everlasting. He has gained the prize for which he died. Don't we sometimes say of people, if anyone deserves to be happy, it's so and so. That is supremely the case with our Lord Jesus Christ. If there is anyone who deserves to have full and everlasting joy in the presence of God. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be his because of Calvary's victory. And in the light of that, for his sake, we pray, Father in heaven, hasten the day. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these things. And we thank you that by grace so many of us here have a share in that victory. We are the fruits of that victory. And we bless you for that. That Christ has loved us And has conquered us, has set us free from our enemy, has given to us eternal life and the assurance that we will share his joy. Lord, if there be any here tonight of whom that is not yet true, be merciful to them. That into the joy of Jesus, the full and everlasting joy that will be his they too may enter and loving father you who love your son as we can never love him you to whom he is the most precious of persons you who delight in Calvary's victory as none of us can delight we pray that for the sake of your son you will hasten the day when the full and perfect joy will be his. When he will have around him his church perfected and completed the bride for which he died that in her company he might rejoice for ever and ever. Amen. We're going to sing the last few verses of Psalm 16 in the Scottish Psalter. This is on page 216 the last few verses, from verse 8 to verse 11, words prophetic of Christ and of not being abandoned to the grave or seeing corruption and of the pleasures forevermore that are his and shall be his at God's right hand and in which we will share if we are his. We sing Psalm 16 in the Scottish psalter, from verse eight to the end, before me still the Lord I set. Before me still the Lord I set. Sitteth so. Because of this